The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Praise the Lord. All glory be to Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes this afternoon. And turn to chapter 11 with me and we will be reading verses 7 of chapter 11 through through verse 7 of chapter 12. Solomon says, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let, not your, or let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity." Remember also your Creator in the days of your your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light of the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, And those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along. And desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated as we come now to God's holy word. This afternoon, having focused earlier today on God's great sovereignty from the book of Habakkuk, and how the reality that God is both pervasively sovereign and always good and faithful, how those realities govern our lives and our responses to to hardship and to affliction and to disappointment in our lives. I wanted to look with you now at the book of Ecclesiastes and at the end of the book and, and a portion at least of these last two chapters where Solomon, at the end of his life, was looking back at all of the ways that he had tried to find ultimate meaning in his life, ultimate significance in his life, 
but in a lot of ways earlier in his life apart from the worship of God. And he's exhorting us now in wisdom looking back to keep our focus in this world and during the short time that we have here. That's what these chapters are about. I know it's a little risky to stand here in this church and preach from the book of Ecclesiastes because your pastor has preached these words and I'm really glad he's not here because um, he might not agree with everything I say, but, but, but we'll be okay. And, and I'm also gonna call a bit of an audible here and I'm gonna, I'm gonna shift the focus somewhat from what I had planned several weeks ago to cover from these two chapters A lot of that is in light of what we've covered in the conference, and I want to weight things a little more towards chapter 11 than 12, but they'll go together in the section that we've read, and also for the sake of time, we're going to abbreviate a bit what what verses we look at from what was originally planned. So that's going to affect the title of the sermon. It says on your bulletin that the title is The Whole End of Man, which comes from verse 12 of chapter 12, and we're not going to make it that far. Uh, So if I was going to give it a title this morning, I would give it, or this afternoon, I would give it instead the title, Remember Your Creator. So if you don't want to write something in your notes, you can write that. Remember Your Creator. Look at verse 7 of chapter 11, where Solomon says, Light is sweet and pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in all of them. Amen. So if I could boil down what that verse is saying for us, Solomon means that as much as God intends for our lives on this earth to be marked by faithfulness no matter what's going on, he also intends for our lives to be marked by joyfulness no matter what's going on. Amen? And the reason for that is because those two things, faithfulness and joyfulness, really do go hand in hand in the life of the person of God. And so Solomon uses the word light right there in verse 7 in order to portray the goodness of life. And and actually, this is a pretty common way in the Scriptures for the writers of Scripture and for, for the Holy Spirit Himself to portray goodness and blessing in the Bible by way of images of light. So Psalm 97, verse 11, for instance, says, Light is sown for the righteous, and joy is for the upright in heart. It's it's using the word light, see, to indicate blessings, good things. Listen to how beautifully God speaks of future blessings for His people using the imagery of light in Isaiah and chapter 60. He says, The Lord will be your everlasting light. Didn't we just sing something like that? And your God will be your glory. Your sun, shall no ma- don't, your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. And that's the same kind of sense in which Solomon is using the word light here in Ecclesiastes 11 verse 7. Light is sweet. When the sun's out like it is today, it's glorious. Shining all of the, of the light on the great beauty of the creation in this world. It's pleasant for our eyes. 
One commentator explains what Solomon is saying like this. He says, since life is not truly life unless it can be enjoyed, light is often used to designate the pleasures of life. And similarly, to see the sun means not merely to live, but to live joyfully. That's what Solomon wants. He's an old man now. He's at the end of his life. He's looking back on it all. And he says, you need to rejoice in all of the years, whether you're young or whether you've been young and now you're old and it's getting harder and harder, you need to rejoice and live joyfully. And so what Solomon is saying really can be, can be summed up in the first part there of verse 8. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in all of them. Not just in the young ones, not just in the early ones, but in all of them. So the message is that the predominant mood of our lives throughout all the years of our lives needs to be one of joy and rejoicing. And he says that, understanding full well all of the hardships, all of the trials, all the sorrows, all the afflictions, all the vanities that all of us experience in the lives that we have in this world to use Solomon's word under the sun, on this earth. It's hard sometimes. It's hard a lot of times, isn't it? There's all kinds of miserable stuff that goes on in the world, as we talked about even this morning. Lots of causes for distress, lots of causes for fear, lots of causes for sorrow, even lots of causes for indignation. We see on the news terrorist bombings, mass shootings, cop killings, there's domestic violence. There's child abuse, there's poverty, there's oppression, there's human trafficking that goes on all over this world and in our own country. Abortion, genocide, immorality, godlessness, persecution, hatred for God and His truth. And you do suffer brutally painful hardships of losing loved ones in this life. Terrible diseases afflict us. Bodies break down. Bodies wear out. Relationships fall apart. Children rebel. Children refuse to repent and follow Jesus. Jobs get lost. Homes get lost. Financial pressures of every kind. Uncertainty in our minds of what the future holds. On and on and on we can go, right? Listing... All the ways in which life is hard, life is stressful, life is painful. And, and often, if we were to pick a word, maybe miserable in this world. And yet Solomon, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, says, Rejoice. In all your years, rejoice. Paul, also under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, writing from a a situation of imprisonment in Rome says, Rejoice in the Lord always from prison. Again, I'll say, if you didn't get it the first time, again I'll say, he says, Rejoice. And the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes really, I think, is to teach us how. How do you rejoice in this world and in this life? How do we keep perspective And how do we keep our perspective from getting mired down 
in all of the all of the under the sun realities that that tend to lead to discouragement and disappointment and frustration and despair. How do we fix our eyes on on what's above the sun? That God is sovereign over time, over history, over every other area of life, and that He's good, and and that He cares. And that He gives us good gifts along with the painful afflictions to enjoy, blessings to enjoy in this world. Ones that we often don't even think to give Him praise for. Big ones and little ones that we take for granted. We're we're quick to complain when trials, big ones and little ones, happen. Are we as quick to rejoice when wonderful blessings, great and small, come our way by the, by the faithful hand of our Heavenly Father. So see, your heart, Christian, can be like a, a spiritual barometer. If, if the atmosphere that your soul, your attitude is predominantly registering is joy, even though the circumstances of your life are hard and maybe brutal then that's a really good indication that your focus and your hope and your confidence is, confidence is fixed in the right place by faith on the things that are unseen, on the things that are eternal. That's how, that's how Paul's focus was in, in Philippians, right? Even though his immediate surroundings, what he could see, what he could feel in this world, it was miserable as he sat imprisoned and, and would later be persecuted in Rome. Still his heart registered joy. But if the predominant atmosphere of our hearts isn't isn't joyful, there's going to be days when you're discouraged. That's okay. I'm talking about the predominant atmosphere. If it's bogged down in frustration and discontentment and complaining and irritability and anxiety and fearfulness and bitterness and anger... That is a surefire indicator that our focus is on all the wrong stuff. And again, we all feel that way sometimes. Because there are hard things and they do affect us as humans and that's okay. It's just, it's when we dwell there. It's when a hard thing happens and we don't do what the writers of Scripture do, right? How about, how about Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations? My teeth are grinding in the gravel. I mean, he's sitting in in the streets of Jerusalem, the golden city of God, and everything's burning because the Babylonians finally made it there, breached the walls, tore it all down, lit it all on fire. People were being put to the sword. Women were being ravaged. Children were being slain. Screaming and crying, smoke. But this I what? Call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, right? His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. This morning, when everything's burning around me, the mercies of God are new. Great is thy faithfulness. How about that, right? 
It's, see, it's when we don't do that. It's when we go through something hard and then we say, I am not going to call to mind the steadfast love of my God and His goodness and mercies and faithfulness. That we're in trouble. It's when joy is fleeting in our lives. It's when joy is fragile, but discontentment and irritation and complaining are common and, and resilient and the dominant mood. That's when we know our focus is off. That's when we know that in our estimation, the things of this world, the circumstances of our lives are way, way, way too big in our estimation, and that the precious and very great promises of God who is so awesome and good are way, way, way too small in our estimation. That's when we're fretting about grains of sand under a microscope and ignoring the mountains of mercy that are new every morning. We're overwhelmed by the puddles of water that we're where our feet are wet in, and, and we're underwhelmed by the ocean of steadfast love and, and faithfulness that our, our God lavishes on us. So Solomon, who's more intimately acquainted, I think, with the troubles and sorrows and afflictions of life in this world than, than most of us may ever be, at least than most of us could ever imagine, Solomon says, in all your years rejoice. So ask yourselves honestly, what atmosphere does the barometer of your heart typically indicate? Not immediately after a trial comes. Those spikes are normal, but what's the average barometric pressure of your soul? I mean, in verse 8, Solomon acknowledges this, right? He acknowledges that in this life, the days of darkness will be many. And he says, all that comes is vanity. That word vanity is the Hebrew word havel. And it just means vapor. It means the steam that's coming off of your cup of coffee when you're standing outside on a cold morning and you can see it for a second and then gone. That's, where, that, that's literally what the word means. Everything in this world under the sun, even our lives in these bodies, is fleeting. It's like a breath. It's like vapor. And so, if we stake our hope to it, then everything will seem meaningless to us. That's why sometimes that word's translated meaningless. It doesn't mean that the things of the world are meaningless. It means... Everything will seem meaningless if we try to anchor our ultimate hope and joy and satisfaction to things that are just vapor. It's like trying to catch a cloud in a cup. You can't do it. And you'll just be frustrated all the time if you try to. You think you've got real, lasting, permanent joy because you've got a lot of money? Well, praise God for the money. Be grateful to Him. But guess what? It doesn't last forever and you can't take any of it with you. You think you've got lasting, permanent joy and you can finally be satisfied and never be anxious for anything because you've got a good house or nice clothes or good health or good looks or pleasant circumstances. Wonderful that God has blessed you with those things. Praise God. But everything that comes in this world is momentary. It's ephemeral. 
It all goes away and you can't take any of it with you. It's the light that comes from the flickering candle. All of the under the sun stuff is is regularly snuffed out in this world. Not because it's evil stuff, not because it's bad stuff, just because it's not permanent stuff. God gives it as a wonderful gift for the time that we're here. But it's not what our souls long for ultimately. The breath and the vapor can't last. So Solomon exhorts us to remember that. And to be aware of the transitory nature of this world and all the stuff in this world and our lives in this world. And so to be mindful of the inevitability of the darkness, of calamity and trial and death that will come. And he does that not to discourage us. Not to diminish our joy. Not to be a big downer. Not to go, hey, hey, stop enjoying stuff so much because tomorrow things are going to be rotten. Oh, fine, you think it's all fun now. Just wait till it gets hard. No, he's not, a, he's not a killjoy. He's not trying to rain on anybody's parade. He's not trying to diminish joy. He's trying to fill us with a sense of urgency to pursue a life of joy and, reju- and rejoicing, but by pursuing the things of God, first and foremost. His kingdom. His righteousness. And to put our hope in all that we have in Him, all that we are in Him, and all that is stored up for us in eternity. And so he says there in verse 9, that this pursuit needs to start early. Like if you don't get on, on board with this perspective when you're young, then when you get old and things start getting hard, you're going to have a really, really tough time. So for young people here today, pay attention to Solomon's wisdom here. He's not saying there's there's no hope of finding this wisdom or no hope of finding this joy for those who start pursuing it later. He's just focusing on young people. He's just exhorting young people not to waste their youthfulness. Not to be like so many worldly young people are and just, hey, I'm young and I'm vital and I've got all this energy and I've got all this strength and I'm good looking and I'm just going to live it up. And I'll worry about all the responsibility and godliness and getting all my affairs straight with the Lord. I'll worry about all that later. Solomon's saying, if you tried it, and he's an old man, he's looking back, he's saying, that's what I did. And let me tell you, you're a fool if you do it that way. Old habits die hard. <laughs> My brother-in-law says, the older we get, the more pickled we get. So Solomon says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Don't wait. Walk in the ways of your heart and the side of your eyes, but no. That for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. We've got to be careful how we understand that. Here's the, here's the bottom line. The dominant mood and atmosphere of our lives needs to be joy and rejoicing. And that needs to start early. That needs to start in the days of our youth. And so when Solomon says that young people should walk in the ways of their hearts and the sight of their eyes, be careful, right? Because the wisdom of our world means follow your heart in a very different way than what Solomon's saying here. Just do what feels good. Just let your own desires 
and impulses just drive you and govern you to do whatever seems good to you. That's not what Solomon is saying, right? Just enjoy whatever your eyes find attractive in this world and and go for it. Solomon's not promoting any kind of unbridled hedonism here. Or, or, Or any kind of pursuing pleasure for the sake of pleasure. And seeking it in whatever form our sinful flesh pleases. Actually, what verse 9 there is all about is a call to holiness in the lives of young people. When he says, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, he's thinking about the heart and the eyes in biblical terms, not worldly terms. Don't let the world hijack the language of Scripture and the meaning of these words. The the heart, biblically, is the center of the person's whole inner life. That's the Old Testament concept of the heart. The center of the person's whole inner life. It's the source of thought. It's the source of feeling. It's the source of resolve, resolution. It's the source of character. And Solomon is saying that joyfulness is not only uh, permitted in the innermost regions of a person's life, in their heart, he's saying, in fact, it's necessary. It's commanded. Be joyful in your heart. It's requisite. And then the eyes, biblically speaking, are not just these physical things that take in light from the outside and transmit images to our brain. Um, Biblically speaking, the eyes are linked to the heart. The eyes are the instruments of the heart. They're the gateways to the inner life of the whole person. So Jeremiah and Deuteronomy and Job, they all link the eyes and the heart. What you allow to come in through your eyes ends up flourishing in your heart. That's a that's a law of the universe. That's a law of image-bearing life. Be careful what you let come through your eyes. Because it will influence and flourish in your heart. And if it's evil, evil will flourish. If it dishonors God, it will flourish. Moses says that sight leads to joy in Exodus 4. Solomon says that sight leads to wisdom in Proverbs 24. And he says that sight, when it's directed on what God says is beautiful in marriage and in the context of marriage, Solomon says in the Song of Solomon that the sight of your wife leads to delight. But if you take that out of context and look upon things that God has designated for marriage outside of marriage, it leads to something entirely other than joy and delight. It leads to a wicked and corrupt kind of pleasure that will dominate and destroy your mind and your heart. But of course, because of the reality and corruption in this world and the sinfulness of our flesh, that's, that's how it can go. Seeing with our eyes, very commonly, very easily leads to lust. And covetousness also, and pride, and arrogance, and disdain, and contempt. 
So what Solomon's saying is that we need to learn early in our lives to find true joy in our hearts and with our eyes. He's saying that it's good and necessary and essential for our hearts to be filled with joy from an early age and for that joy to come from the good things that God has made so long as we're careful to find them and to receive them and to enjoy them in the way that God designs and prescribes, not just in the way that our flesh desires. And so in the New Testament, doesn't John warn us about the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life? Because those desires, those don't come from the Father. They come from the world. They come from fallen, corrupt, sinful systems of rebellion against God. And that's what characterizes what the Bible calls the world. So Solomon wants us to rejoice and to let joy dominate the atmosphere of our hearts, but he's also warning us, right? And he says there that all these things God will bring into judgment. And he just means... Be careful what you do. Be careful what the sources of your joy are because God is going to put all these things to the test. That's what He means by judgment there. To determine whether they're right or whether they're wrong. Judgment has that sense to it, biblically speaking. It doesn't mean what sometimes the world means. Just somebody standing over somebody and just just anger and, and, and wanting to just crush them in judgment. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the judgment of the God of the Bible. Biblically, the judgment of God means at its heart that God is the one who is defined by and driven by what is right. God is the one that is defined by and driven by what is good. And He's the one who brings about what is right and what is good. So what Solomon's saying is that we need to always remember that the day is coming when everything that we do in this life will be measured up to the standard of God's holiness. And then he will judge. He will determine whether or not it's been right and good. That's kind of scary, right? Which is exactly why the realities of God's holiness and righteousness and judgment need to give shape and define the joy and the pleasure that we pursue in this life and how we pursue it. Don't trust your own heart on its own without guidance and without being completely captive to the Word of God and the holiness and the righteousness of God. Solomon is teaching us to avoid ultimately here two equal but opposite errors. On the one hand, he's teaching us to avoid uh, what we call hedonism. Pleasure for the sake of pleasure as your heart decides what's pleasurable all on its own according to your sinful nature. So fleshly indulgence is the first thing Solomon wants us to avoid. A, A pursuit of pleasure that has no boundaries. It's just defined by whatever you want. And informed by the corrupt currents of of this fallen world. Then on the other hand, the opposite error that he wants us to avoid is is to avoid what's called asceticism. And that's just a fancy word for an approach to piety or holiness which insists that 
holiness and pleasure are opposed to each other. You, you can't pursue holiness and also have fun. <laughs> That's asceticism. You can't pursue holiness and, and pleasure at the same time. If you're enjoying yourself, then you're surely not being holy. That's asceticism. And Solomon wants us to, to avoid that like the plague also. This idea that enjoyment itself is inherently sinfully indulgent. That old Umberto Echo book, right? The Name of the Rose, where one of the monks in the monastery is poisoning the pages of the comedy books in the library so that if anybody goes in and tries to read them and have a laugh, they die. That's asceticism. And Solomon's going, that's not the way God designed this world to work, and that's not what He wants your life to be in this world. So, monks taking vows of poverty, monks taking vows of celibacy, people depriving themselves of any kind of earthly pleasure because they think that's where evil is and that's what evil is. They don't want to admit that in their own hearts is the source of where evil comes from, right? Oh, the evil's not coming from me. The evil's coming from all this fun stuff. <laughs> all this pleasurable stuff. So those are just a bunch of examples of, uh, of an ascetic approach to holiness in the life that is completely misguided and utterly unbiblical and not at all what Solomon has any concept of in the book of Ecclesiastes. And anyone whose thinking is tainted by that And by that impulse to think that the way to be holy is to abstain from enjoyment instead of reveling in the things that God gives us to enjoy in the way that He prescribes and defines, they've completely missed a lot of what God reveals in His Word and a lot of what God says our lives in this world are really all about. Solomon says, the goal of a godly life is no more to deprive ourselves of joy and pleasure than it is to just wantonly and selfishly indulge in joy and pleasure in whatever way the corrupt world offers us and in whatever way our sinful flesh desires. The goal of our hearts is to be filled with joy, which comes from our minds and our souls and our lives being centered around God and His holiness and His glory, and His will, and His purposes, and promises, and mercies, and faithful, loving providences, whether or not they're pleasant. That's what the Bible calls the joy of the Lord. The joy which has its source in the Lord. The joy which has its focus on the Lord. That kind of joy is our strength. Fill yourself with that kind of joy and you will persevere, you will endure, you will grow as you serve God in this world. But anchor your soul's quest for joy to the things of this world in whatever way your sinful desires want and you will wither. And your joy will give way regularly to despair. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And you will radiate and reflect the light of His holiness and goodness into the darkness of this world around you. So the positive exhortation is pursue a joyful life for all your years. In this way, focusing on and reveling in the holiness and righteousness and goodness and kindness of our great and awesome God. And the other side of that same coin, in verse 10, 
of chapter 11 is the command to do away with anything that's a hindrance to God-fearing joy, God-centered joy in your life. Solomon says, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. And he's not talking about arthritis. The word vexation in Hebrew is kos. It's a word that means something that grieves you. Something that can anger you. Something that irritates. And you're thinking, well, I, can, I, I got a list of that. I got a list of people that do that. Should I, I'm, I'd be happy to remove those people from my life, right? That's not what Psalm is talking about. He's, he's used this same word, kaos, vexation, uh, a bunch of times already in the book of Ecclesiastes. All the way back in chapter 1 and verse 18, he said, In much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow. Hmm. In chapter 2 and verse 23, he says that work causes vexation. And a lot of you say, Amen. But what's he mean? Well, he doesn't mean, obviously, that wisdom and knowledge are bad. He doesn't mean that work is bad. He commands us to work. And if you have a job that puts food on the table of your family, then he's given you a good gift that you can rejoice in. What he means is that if we're trying to use those things in and of themselves to try to establish and maintain lasting, permanent significance and meaning and joy in our life, it's not going to work. Because they're fleeting. They're havel. They're shifting shadows. They're like the wind. And so if you run around in your life saying, I need to be joyful and I'm going to put all of my eggs in the basket of my job in order to be joyful. I'm going to put all of my effort to be joyful into the pursuit of this person or this money or this thing or anything that is under the sun, then you're only ever going to know vexation, frustration. So what he means there in verse 10 of chapter 11 is a summation of what he's been saying through the whole book, which is don't anchor your ultimate hope and confidence and significance and joy to anything that's under the sun because it's all temporary. And you'll go, ah, I got it, I got it. And then you'll go, it's gone. Where? I don't got it. But by faith, which is the assurance of things that we cannot see. Fix your hope and confidence and meaning and significance and joy above the sun on all that is eternal and all that is imperishable. And when you do that, then everything that God gives you in this world to enjoy will be meaningful and wonderful. But if you try to make it the object of your joyfulness and significance in and of itself apart from God, it will be miserable and it will fail you. So Solomon means that it's critically, critically, critically important for us to discern in our minds, in our own lives, 
the things and the ways in which we're, we're fixated on and consumed with and bound by a, a, an under-the-sun perspective. I can't be happy unless I have this. Can't be joyful. Can't be content. Can't be satisfied. My barometric pressure is going to be way off and I'm going to be moody and discouraged and bitter unless I've got some combination of things under the sun. You try to do it that way and you'll never have the right combination. As soon as you get one, it'll go away. Solomon's saying you, you, you need to figure out how you're trying to satisfy your soul with temporal things and not remove the temporal things, but remove that impulse. Remove that strategy. Which means taking all the temporal things in your life, whether they're good or whether they're painful, which are also good, and putting them in their proper place. If there are things that are inherently sinful and bad, right? they got to go all together. Because they obviously distract us from what's good and holy and true, and they don't have any proper place in the life of a child of God. So they've got to go. They've got to get cut out, whatever they are. A person who's always tempting you to sin in whatever way. Something on your computer that has no place coming into your eyes. Got to go. You don't turn the knob down on that. You just cut the cord. And then there are all kinds of things, right? That they're not inherently bad. They're good things. They're blessings that God has given us. But if we're too focused on them, if our joy and our hope are too dependent on them, if they're too important, if they're too big in our hearts and minds and lives, and dwarfing the things that actually ultimately matter, they've got to be put into their proper place. And that can happen with anything. Anything. Money, career, property, your reputation, relationships, your health, anything in this world. You've got to recognize where the priorities of our heart have gone out of whack and how that's causing vexation in our lives and then put things in their proper place. That's what Solomon's saying. And you've got to start doing that when you're young. It means submitting everything to the sovereign will and providence and wisdom of God in His Word. Seek first as the governing priority of your life. His kingdom, His righteousness. And then He, you can trust it, will add whatever stuff you need in this world. And He's going to give you more than what you need. He's going to also give you all kinds of stuff that, that are just bonuses that you get to enjoy. And with the right perspective, you'll, you'll rejoice and enjoy them and say, praise God for blessing me in a way that I didn't even need. Hoping in Him, even if His providence means hardship or disappointment. Counting on God as our portion, even if our flesh and our heart should fail. Making God's nearness our good. As long as you're with me and you're always with me, then if no one else is with me and everything else is falling apart, I'm good. I'm okay. It means zooming out, right, from the cares of this world to become overwhelmed by the majesty of God's holiness and mercy. So on the one hand, 
Now, now move into chapter 12 with me. Living a life of genuine joy all the years of our lives means receiving and accepting and rejoicing in all of the good gifts and blessings that God does provide for us in this world. Counting our blessings, naming them one by one. Praising God for the roofs over our heads and the jobs that we have and the money that we're provided with, the the food that we get to eat, the enjoyments and the pleasures that He gives because He's good and He's kind and He's lavish as a father. And He delights to balance out the hardships of life with, with pleasant things for His children to enjoy like any good and righteous parent does. Any good and righteous parent who parents biblically has to discipline their kids sometimes. And that's not fun for the kids. It's, it's painful and it's difficult, but we do it because we love them and we want to train them for righteousness. We've got to say no to our kids sometimes if we're good parents. Because having too much of that's not good for you. Having any of that's really bad for you. So no, you can't have that. Or you at least can't have it right now or you can't have it anymore. Well, that's not fun for them. Sometimes we've got to watch and allow them to endure painful things and go through major disappointments and losses and sorrows. That's just what parenting is sometimes. It's tough. But, but, but sometimes we get to make them smile, right? We get to do things that just light up their faces and make them laugh. So we delight in giving our kids things not because they just need it, Right? Here's a bag of socks for Christmas. <laughs> I used to get so many socks for Christmas. It's like, oh, thank you, Auntie Shirley. I had to say or else I wouldn't eat that night. But, but you know, the good, the good gifts are the ones that you don't need. You, don't need. you need socks. The good gifts are the ones you don't need, right? The skateboard. And the video game once in a while, as long as it's not going to just corrupt your mind. It's fun and it lights their faces up and it's going to balance out the tough times with times of blessings. This is how God is. And as tough as many of the things in our lives are and our world are, and as prone as we are sometimes to focusing on them too much and and cultivating this sort of self-centered, me-centered, grumbled, discontented, complaining attitude, if we're honest, there are thousands and thousands and trillions of little blessings And countless big ones too that God has just given us all the time to say nothing about the ultimate blessings, the biggest blessings, the eternal blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. You'll suffer for a little while and then you'll be in glory forever. And while you're suffering for a little while, the sun's going to come out and you're going to see those beautiful mountains. And a check's going to come in the mail and you don't know where it came from. And all of a sudden, there's going to be a providence that you just can't explain in any other way than that God just lined it all up perfectly right when you needed it. That's what we need to be focused on. Verse 1, chapter 12. Solomon reminds us not only to focus on the good gifts, right? Focus on those gifts, enjoy those gifts. Rejoice in those gifts, but don't just focus on the gifts that we have in our lives. Ultimately, all the days of our lives, be focused on the goodness of the giver. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Spend your years, as, 
as early as you can, from the get-go, from your youth, learning, studying, meditating on, reflecting on, reveling in everything that God has revealed about Himself in His Word. All of His glorious attributes. All of the wonders of His nature and ways. All of the deep mysteries of His character and sovereign wisdom. Because you know what? When you're young and everything feels good and works good and it's all exciting, and so you're doing all kinds of fun stuff, then years and years later you get old and your body starts breaking down and you can't do any of that stuff anymore and things are tough and hard and it gets worse and worse that way. None of that old stuff that you used to be able to do is going to do you any good then. Right? But if you have cultivated a soul-filled reveling in the glory of God from your youth and have that on board, then when the hard days hit, you're going to be okay. So get your priorities straight while you can. All of the deep mysteries of God's character and sovereign wisdom have to fill and flood our minds and heart because This is where the fear of the Lord comes from, which is the beginning of wisdom. A deep sense of reverential awe. Being consumed with amazement and adoration and love and devotion to the great eternal God who made this whole universe and put all the stars in their place and named them all by name and sent His only begotten Son to this little planet to save my wretched soul. When nothing else feels good in your world anymore under the sun, that'll hold you up. He'll hold you up. And that's what the Bible describes as the fear of the Lord, which leads to wisdom. It's, it's trusting His will and law and His way and submitting to Him and following it in a way that produces joy, even in the midst of sorrows and trials. Cultivate that and cultivate it early. Again, Jeremiah This I call to mind. Jeremiah wasn't terribly young at this point and things were miserable for him. But he focused on deliberately all of the goodness and love and mercy and faithfulness of his God and had hope and rejoiced. Paul, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Trust me, you can do it. I'm in prison. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Know your God. Be consumed with the beauty of His holiness like like you're consumed with no other interest or pursuit in your life. Someone posted something on Facebook once that said, I don't need to know anything about the hypostatic union of Christ or the Trinity I don't need to know the God who made the Redwoods because the Redwoods were good enough for them. What struck me about it was this this celebration of ignorance about the character and the nature of the God who made these things as he reveals himself in his word, and then, and then this person boasting about, about limiting what we know about God 
and boasting in the fact that all they could say about God was, He made the redwood trees. And the trees are good enough for me. Well, fire ripped through our, our valley several years ago that burnt a lot of those redwood trees down to the ground. And they're gone. I mean, Paul does say that God reveals His invisible nature and divine attributes in the things He's made, right? David says in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. They, they put on display His divinity and the fact that He's the Creator. And that renders us without any excuse to not worship Him and serve Him. And what the unbelieving heart does is say, yeah, He did a good job and I'm going to worship the creation and not the Creator. I'm going to enjoy the gifts more than the giver. Don't let your heart do that. And so in the Scriptures is where we go to learn all about God's eternality, all about God's immutability, His unchangingness, His justice and holiness and mercy and grace and love. And we have to fill our minds to overflowing with all of that stuff. The more we comprehend, like Paul says in Ephesians 3, the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge, then the more that we can cry out, like he does at the end of Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. And how inscrutable are His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become His counselor? Who's given a gift to God and then been repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things and to Him be the glory forever. The more our hearts are overflowing with that kind of rejoicing, then the less burdened they are by all of the weight of, of the vanity of this fallen world. The bigger God is in our eyes, the smaller everything else comes to be. This is what our lives need to consist of. This, see, this can't be extracurricular activity. This can't be what you do for an hour or two or three on Sunday, and then the rest of it's about you trying to satisfy your soul with whatever's under the sun. This can't be anything that you neglect for any portion of your life so that you can spend most of your time indulging in worldly pleasure and pursuits and cares. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in these years. Evil doesn't mean moral evil in this context. It means distressing Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the distressing days come. Yeah, how many of us have started to taste the distressing days? Days that are hard to go through. Days that you say, these are, these are not pleasurable days. And specifically here in these verses, they're, they're days that are distressing because we get old. And our bodies start to break down. And eventually in this world we die physically. Now this is what all the imagery in verses 2 through 8 of chapter 12 is all about. It's about old age, failing health, and eventual death. 
And Solomon, Solomon paints it like a, like, a, like a picture on the wall of a gallery. And he, he portrays it as a, like a gathering storm. You, you start to feel the winds of it blow. And then you know it's going to get harder and harder. And then verses 3 and 4 paint this picture of how our health and our bodies start to fall apart. You don't think they will when you're 20, but then you get to be 52 and you start to go, "Uh uh-oh, a couple things aren't working the way they used to. And your doctor says, well, you know what, we really need to do some blood tests and see what's going on in the inside. And you go, "Ah, I'm good, feel great. And then you see the results and you go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, things really aren't working the way they're supposed to. And the older you get, and the more advanced your body gets in this world, the more things aren't working the way that they're supposed to. So he talks about the keepers of the house. That's a picture for your arms. The the instruments of your body that, that kept the house in order and did all the work to patch the roof and put up the walls and they start to tremble when you're older. They start to weaken. Your wife says, can you take this big heavy thing and lift it up on that shelf for me? And when you were 30, it was like I could one arm that thing up there and now you're like, oh! And then eventually it's, it just can't do much. It talks about the strong men. Those are the legs and they... They get bent, he says. They're, they're, they're not strong anymore. The grinders that he mentions, those are the teeth in your mouth and they stop working and you know why? Because there are not as many of them anymore. They're few. Those that look through the window, I'm glad you're all laughing. I don't want to offend anybody, but Solomon's just saying this is the way it goes and he's an old guy and he's like, trust me. Those that look through the windows are the eyes and they get dim. And you start needing these and then those don't even do you much good eventually. In verse 4, he switches to a different kind of metaphor. He's making the same point though. He uses the picture of an old house with the doors all boarded up and all the sounds of activity inside stopping. Whoever's living in there is sleeping erratically and that's a picture of an aging person verse 5 more imagery Uh, the almond tree blossoming you know what color the blossoms of the almond tree are yep (laughs) they're white and and your hair starts to stop being so wonderful of a color and just go white the hair's going gray the grasshopper dragging itself along that It just pictures the the difficulty of walking in later years. Desire failing is self-explanatory. These are all common sides of aging. And they're all hard realities to face in later years. These are all the reasons why Solomon calls old age the evil days. Not morally evil, but just hard, unpleasant, difficult. They're all reasons why when people start having to have those things happen to them and they go through those things, they say, I have no pleasure in these days. It's hard when the body you've counted on all these years starts to fall apart on you. It's hard to face 
what that is leading towards and the inevitable reality of, of death. Which, by the way, verse 6 pictures is something precious being broken. That's what death is like for us. A silver cord being snapped. But that's the road that we're all heading down. When we're young and our bodies are strong, and it, it, it's just easy to take our health for granted. It's easy to just ignore what's lying ahead. But sooner or later, we're all going to get there. And Solomon's point is you've got to be ready for it. And you've got to get ready for it before you get there. When everything that matters to you under the sun, everything of this world, everything about your earthly life, and the earthly tent that is your body, when it all starts to get torn down, your hope had better have been anchored to what is eternal for a lot of years already. So start now. Your life better consist of rejoicing in the awesome glory of our sovereign, holy, merciful God for a long time so that when you run out of things in this world to really rejoice in because they're all breaking down, you can still rejoice. Nothing in this world's going to last. Verse 7 says it's all going to return to the dust of the earth. And your spirit one day is going to return to God who gave it. And on that day, nothing in the entire universe is going to matter except for one thing. And that is whether or not your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. It's whether or not you have known Jesus and been known by Jesus. It's whether or not you have gained Christ and been found in Him through faith. Whether or not He is your whole hope and confidence. Whether or not His glory or Lordship matter more than anything in this world. Amen? All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Savior, our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, how we give You praise for revealing to us what we need to know most in Your Word, which is the source of hope and the source of joy in Christ Jesus alone which guarantees us life with You for eternity. Oh Father, help us to keep everything in proper perspective. Help us to plumb the depths of the wisdom of Your Holy Word that we might know You more and understand more how to live our lives by faith in You and not put our confidence and not anchor our hope or our joy or our significance or our meaning to anything but You. So that then when You give us wonderful things in this world, Father, we can rejoice, but know that they're not ultimate because only You are. And Father, we are destined in Christ to spend eternity in the new heavens, on the new earth, with You as our light. With You as our eternal shepherd. With You as our King in our midst. And so, Father, fix our eyes on all that truly matters and help our lives to rejoice and to give glory to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.
We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.